This episode of What the Fintech is sponsored by AFS, the Banking Technology Award winner for the best COVID-19 response by fintechs for its mass update tool for PPP loans. Hello and welcome to our first What the Fintech of 2021. Uh, This is the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures, and joining me today are Sharon Kimathy, my editor at Fintech Futures. Hey, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too. And Dean Snyder, EVP and Head of Business Solutions at AFS Vision. Happy New Year from AFS. Fantastic. A great way to start the year with a great fintech podcast. Uh, It's the first one, uh, but old ghosts are still haunting us. Uh, We're going to be talking to Dean in a little bit about the COVID pandemic, accelerated changes in the lending space and challenges we could see in the future. But first up, as ever, is our news in numbers. We've gone out and picked on the big numbers in the news at the start of 2021. Uh, hopefully, it's a big, chunky first. Ep, uh, Dean, you're our guest, so you have the honor of going first. What news? Uh, what number in the news has grabbed your attention? I think the number that I saw was in the announcement from BBVA Bank here in the States in shutting down their Smile application. Yeah, with uh, the shutdown of Simple, that's... Uh, uh, that's certainly certainly a big one, yeah. Uh, I think I think it says a lot that uh, it seemed to be one of those services that uh, sat in the background on its own. Um, and uh, there's been a lot of people reporting lately about how uh, it's been a bit of a guessing game as to how many customers Simple actually has. So it's a, it's a wonder whether it, BBVA will uh, will miss Simple that much. People like to jump on this idea that uh, it's another failed. Uh, um, you know, stand on standalone banks thing, but uh, from the reports out there, it's conflicting on how many users they actually had. And what with uh, BBVA uh, recently uh, doing the deal with PNC and PNC reorganizing pretty much most of BBVA's US ops, probably makes sense that they want to get rid of um, <laughs> baggage. Is, a, is the wrong word, but uh, standalone businesses set up by by the previous. Uh, uh, management structure, I suppose. Um, but yeah, yeah. Sharon, what do you think about this uh, shutdown of their quotes? Yeah, because they said that it was a uh, more of a strategic uh, shutdown, um, and I guess the same goes for Aslo, BBVA's online bank for small businesses, which also shut down. Um, the bank said that there'll be no immediate changes to Aslo's customers' accounts or services. Um, and the funny thing is that we've already uh, spoken about you know closing challenger banks or fintechs. Um, from Big Tech's earlier uh, last season when we had Stephanie Brennan, who's CEO of Evervest. And at the time, it was around May when NatWest announced that it's shutting down its digital banking brand, Bow. Um, and last year, BBVA as well closed its mobile identity app, Covault, and it closed Denizen. So it was a fintech that they created back in 2018, which shut down due to an inability to scale. Um, so it's interesting that from, you know, to like this announcement, it was about, you know, a strategic move, whereas uh, with Denizen, it was more of an inability to scale. And last year also, so quite a lot of challenges as well, shutting down shop like Moven, although it didn't fully shut down, it did, I guess, restructure towards an enterprise business for outsourcing the firm's technology to banks and Varo Money ended up snapping up its customer accounts. And also in the UK, we had Arrow Money, which is A-R-R-O. I know Varo and Arrow probably do sound quite similar. But uh, yeah, so we had one closed down and it didn't just leave 
uh, Australia uh, as well in this too. So it's not just UK and US challenger banks because Wildcard was a fintech that shut down in Tandem Bank as well, UK too, in September, terminating its credit cards. And it, it does look like quite a lot of um, closing of accounts and, and banks. So it, it does seem like a similar spot as we were in last year, where we thought, will this be a trend that we continue to see? Um, but what what do you think, Dean? Is this a trend that we're, we're spotting again? Well, in some ways, we're hoping that it's not a trend. I think we certainly saw the year 2020 as a year of disruption in many areas of our life and in business. Uh, So we're certainly hopeful that 2021 starts returning us to some level of stability. However, the nature, I believe, of this market is going to be with so many upstarts, uh, new businesses and so forth, that there is going to be, a, I think, a certain natural amount uh, of turnover Uh, Certainly in the banking space here in the States, it was interesting because uh, BBVA, I think, was seen as a bank that was more on the leading edge with their technology. And yet with the acquisition from PNC, it would appear that several of BBVA's technology platforms uh, are being closed down in in exchange for going with the, the PNC infrastructure. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out in the rest of the market. Yeah, I think that's a, a case you often see in large-scale mergers and acquisitions that uh, when two banks tend to come together, only one bank's technology tends to leave. Uh, it seems that mo- most times it's more of a headache to try and keep two separate technology stacks running than to simply try and merge the two and and connect them all up together into one lovely jumbled up spaghetti mess of infrastructure. Um, not that I'm speaking from experience here. Um, but uh, moving on to, to my uh, weekend numbers number, uh, it's 4,000, not, not quite as big as others, but uh, that's the number of financial services firms which the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK, the FCA, has classed as, in air quotes, as at risk of failure due to the strains placed on them by the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, this isn't uh, a guesstimate. The FCA opened a survey for firms to complete and 23,000 of them took part. Uh, of those, 59% said that they expected the pandemic to impact them negatively. And of those 59%, 72% expect the business impact to affect as much as a quarter of their business now, the FCA's Sheldon Mills, who heads up their consumers and comp- competition department, uh, says that we are in a, and I quote, unprecedented and rapidly evolving situation. Uh, what he did add, however, was that in the FCA's view, many of these firms would be able to bolster their resilience as and when the economic conditions improve uh, throughout this year. Uh, he also added a nice little note to the end saying uh, that the FCA isn't there to stop companies from going bust in the UK. In fact, it's there to prevent harm to consumers rising from those shutdowns. So a uh, bit of a, a stepping on your toes for the discussion you're going to have a little bit later, but I thought it, it ranked in importance because uh, we've seen a lot of people talking about the effects of the pandemic over the last year, how it might affect our industry. And we're finally starting to get some figures to look at when it comes to a sort of a macro level um, 
impact that the pandemic has had um, on firms. Um, but yeah, Sharon, what, what are your thoughts on, on this? Yeah, it was interesting that the FCA cautioned that the survey results were actually collected before the approval and the rollout of a COVID vaccine um, and also the extension of the government's furlough schemes uh, all the way to the 30th of April and this new fresh lockdown measure. Um, but to be honest, I don't think that news would change it too much because with the advent of the vaccine, it's not like the situation has completely calmed itself down. Um, I mean, the health secretary, Matt Hancock, announced last week that the vaccine rollout would be widely uh, put to more people, uh, probably by autumn, is what he says. So so for me, that says to me, autumn is now looking less likely. So in actual essence, it might even be as late as December or January um, that we might actually see a, a wider rollout to, to more people. So to me, although they've cautioned that this is something that's actually, you know, more of a, a heightened scenario, it to me actually isn't. By all estimates, this is not a positive spin at all. <laughs> um, so sorry to be a, a Debbie Downer as always uh, on this podcast, but it, it didn't really add up to me that they would need to, to caveat that. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, in times of uncertainty and firms perhaps going bust and quarter, a quarter of their business being taken up, uh, other uh, sections sectors of the industry tend to thrive, um, which is my clumsy attempt at a segue towards your uh, week in numbers, Sharon. <laughs> it's, it's thriving of some respect, I, I suppose. Um, although, is it for, for that long? Well, well, let's find out. So my number is 33,000. Uh, dollars that is, as Bitcoin knocked off nearly $9,000 from its value, causing the FCA to issue a warning. So the FCA issued this warning on cryptocurrency investors following another post-weekend dip in Bitcoin's ever-climbing value. So the UK regulator said that consumers who invest in crypto assets should be prepared to lose all their money, in quotes, due to their significant price volatility. The FCA says firms which offer these sorts of investments are taking very high risk with investors' money, and consumers should be wary if they're contacted out of the blue, pressured to invest quickly, or promised returns that sound too good to be true. So the FCA reinforced a requirement which came into force on 10th of January, and it instructs all UK firms which offer crypto assets related products to be registered with the FCA, and that operating without a registration is a criminal offence reminding the fintech industry to be careful and exercise caution because they also introduced a ban on the sale of crypto derivatives to retail investors. Now, last weekend, the value of Bitcoin climbed to an all-time high of $41,973, but then on Monday, it dropped below $33,000, briefly knocking off nearly nine grand from its value. And at and that's the time when Ruby's article went live a few days ago. I mean, checking currently today at the time of recording, one Bitcoin equals 25,396 UK pounds sterling. So it's funny because I've already written so much about crypto and my thoughts on it are definitely uh, nothing that anyone's too surprised about. I mean, I did write a whole um, long form article called Is This Our Plumbus? an exploration of crypto and virtual currencies through a compliance lens and hope, hype, repeat cryptocurrency and symbolic value, which was on the Oxford Political Review, where I basically not note how, how volatile this market is, how often people lose out 
because it's mainly those without a lot of funds or aspirational, in quotes, retail investors who take part in this sphere of finance. And the more you actually know about it, the less likely you are to invest in it is what this ING report found out too. So as much as it is a pain for you know, retail investors who are losing out money it is a bigger pain for compliance teams and regulators because they keep trying to quell this incredibly volatile uh, financial system. But what do you think, Dean? Well, I, I very much agree with what you're saying, Sharon. And, uh, you know, being with AFS, our focus is in the commercial lending space of the financial markets. So certainly lending and especially commercial lending tends to be more on the conservative side. So I would agree that um, those with a more conservative perspective are very skeptical about the cryptocurrency. And I think back to uh, Jamie Diamond at one point who made the, the comparison with the, the great tulip crash, right, of several hundred years ago in, in what was Holland then. And uh, I just always kind of chuckled. I think about that. So, um, you, know, we, you know, we would agree that I think there's a lot of uh, uncertainty, certainly, and speculation involved there. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> I tend to try and... Uh, remove myself from conversations about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, um, lest people who knew me back in 2014, 2015, bring up the fact that I said Bitcoin would never go higher than a thousand pounds. So dear. since then, I, I tend to keep quiet about it. Uh, however, the, the, the recent, uh, in air quotes, success sort of bothers me a little bit because I've had friends of mine um, to get in touch with me and say, you know, what's the best method for for investing in cryptocurrency, um, and it's this happened to get when it had its its huge price a spike a few years back. This was the same thing as well, and it's unfortunate because I know friends who back then invested invested in Equos again, um, you know, upwards thousands of pounds, um, thinking this was a sure thing, and that's like the worst thing you should do. <laughs> cryptocurrency is the furthest thing away from a sure thing you can get. I mean, it has. You know, it has no features. It's no. It's not an investment. It the only unique thing about it is that you can move it around on a, an extremely innovative way of moving currency around. Um, there was a fantastic uh, thread by by Brett Scott on Twitter earlier, which I'm gonna I'm gonna quote because I'm a shameless plagiarist. Um, but he said that uh, the rising price doesn't signal any success. It just means that there's another cycle of media driven speculation. Uh, and said the U.S. dollar doesn't notice Bitcoin any more than it notices any other object priced in dollars, whether that be motorbikes or lipsticks. Uh, the difference is with motorbikes or lipstick, uh, you can have intuitive ways of working out whether their price is reasonable or not by comparison to the prices of other goods. Bitcoin is a featureless object, so it escapes the same scrutiny. And therefore, you know, while everyone gets extremely excited right now, uh, we saw this happen a few years ago and the, we saw what happened to the people who got who bought in at that point as well. Yeah. And, and the weird thing is that I've also got the exact same experience of friends who have lost significant amounts of money um, trying to make a sure bet on Bitcoin. But you can't with these things because it's so volatile, as you mentioned. And now there's some people who are so desperate to try and get rid of the stuff because they think it's really tainted that they're even resulting to posting it up on Instagram stories for someone to please go buy their Bitcoin, which I think is also a, a bit negligent and, and kind of dubious. Um, I don't think that Instagram is 
the safest platform for, for people to be looking at investment uh, advice, especially when it's Bitcoin. But not only that, people also forget that you have to convert this actual Bitcoin stuff into fiat money. And oftentimes, uh, brokers that, that do that do charge quite a lot in fees. And then people end up losing out even more than they initially expected to lose out. So it's, it's like a double bet. You're betting not only that you might, again, it's very speculative that you might make money on this thing, but also you're going to end up having to pay someone a lot of money in order to convert this stuff, you know, notwithstanding all of the um, money laundering and uh, AML stuff that usually gets flagged with these things. Cause oftentimes it is, to be honest, being used in, in slightly questionable ways. Um, but yeah, I guess this is this is one of those things, as you mentioned, maybe it's hard to comment because we might end up getting egg on our face. But right now, I'm standing firm in saying that it, it's a it's a no from me. 100%. And uh, whenever things like this happen, I always think back to a few years ago, I went to a cryptocurrency conference, spoke to Bobby Lee, um, one of the founder of China, or was at the time the founder of one of China's largest exchanges. Uh, and I said to him, oh, I really regret not buying in when it was, you know, 50 pounds. And he said to me, um, you know, there are people, uh, consumer investors, and he pointed to me and shamed me in front of everyone. Um, he said that, you know, if you, if you didn't buy in at 50, uh, you wouldn't buy in at 500. If you had bought in at 50, you would have sold at 500. You wouldn't have held on until it hit 10,000 or 20,000. The only people who hold on, uh, the crazy people, he said, pointing to himself, <laughs> uh, which I think says a lot about uh, the cryptocurrency industry in general. Here we are in part two of the podcast. This is where we drill the discussion down into a specific industry topic or sector. Uh, before Sharon asks her questions, uh, Dean, I figure we should give you a little bit of time to tell us about AFS, your company, and your unique market position. So uh, take it away. The floor is yours. Thank you, Alex. Yes, Automated Financial Systems was actually founded in 1970. So we just finished celebrating our 50th year in the business. We are a privately held company, and I think it is a very unique accomplishment, certainly in the, the technology space and, and specifically the banking technology. AFS was founded with a focus on commercial lending. And of course, if you go back to the 70s, this was pre, pre-PCs and, and automation and so forth. And AFS saw an opportunity to start applying technology in a space that was completely manual, being commercial lending. And as AFS developed software capabilities, uh, they focused on being a platform for uh, the commercial loans, which is certainly the high profit margin area for the, the, the large banks, and to expand platforms to cover all types of commercial loans. So going from small business all the way up to multinational syndication deals, uh, there are all types of, of business loans that, um, that the lenders would be offering. So we expanded and across our line of business to offer a single platform. And it was focused originally on servicing and accounting of these loans. 
And then we started looking at the process, the whole business process, which gets us into the origination space, right? Which uh, then we built out capabilities on a workflow uh, base for uh, being able to handle end-to-end commercial lending from taking the initial contact with the the borrower and the lender all the way through uh, review, approval, uh, all the fulfillment steps and so forth, and then eventually the funding, and we call booking of the loan and servicing. So AFS became a full service provider with with our platforms. And more recently, we went through another evolution, and currently our flagship product is referred to as AFS Vision. And not only is it an end-to-end platform for all types of business loans, but also as, excuse me, global capabilities and operates in real time. So anticipating, I think what's happening in the market, what's happening in the technology space is to have a a robust platform that can fit into the bank's uh, ecosystem, which has evolved into a truly real time uh, universe of, of processing, right? So we also uh, launched a business intelligence group within AFS where we focus on all of the data that's collected and, and maintained through our lending platform and offering very robust analytic tools for the lenders and also to take in this data and offer benchmarking services where you're able to compare the data within your business, your portfolios, with some of your peers, uh, whether it's on a pricing basis to see how you're pricing loans or from a risk standpoint, um, how what is the, the risk and rating, risk rating position of your loans compared to your peers in different markets and different uh, geographies and so forth. So uh, we offer, uh, you know, a full suite of, of products and solutions for, for the commercial lending institutions. And how has the COVID pandemic, and especially the Paycheck Protection Program, in which AFS won the Banking Technology Award for Best Response, accelerated technology innovation in commercial lending? Well, certainly with the pandemic and uh, forcing people to be working remotely, working at home, maintaining their social distancing has had a significant impact on the the lending institutions, and um, uh, there's still a need for for loans and borrowing. But uh, traditionally, especially in a commercial loan space, you know there was a lot of face to face contact, going to the offices of of the lenders and so forth. And now this all has to be virtual, so it has increased the need for. Uh, technology and, and really the the whole movement to digitalization, right? Which is the way I look at it is applying technology to some business process. So whether it's uh, e-signatures or uploading of documents and so forth, all that is now done uh, virtually. It's also can speed up the time, right? That it takes to exchange this information and review this information. So, that's that's created a great opportunity for the the lenders to increase their their automation and i think there's always a challenge with adoption right of new technology and so forth and 
the the one of the good byproducts of the COVID pandemic, I believe, is that it's helped accelerate that adoption. And, and I think that adoption, uh, remember, we're, we're focused in commercial lending, which is different from consumer and retail, right? I think the consumers can move even faster, and we've seen that in in, in their uh, services and their expectations and so forth. It was always a little bit slower on the commercial business side of, of lending, but this is the, the COVID pandemic is actually going to help accelerate that, that change and that adoption of more uh, technology. And how does AFS keep its pulse on the rapid changes in technology and stay ahead of these trends? Again, AFS has been unique, I believe, in that the, the products that we built to support commercial lending uh, are very robust, and we were able to achieve a dominant market share in the U.S. banking industry, where most of the major banks would be using AFS technology to support their commercial lending. So that gives us contacts with the major institutions, the major banks, and we very much uh, build relationships with our customers. And through that contact, we're able to uh, keep pulse with with the industry. And of course, then it's a snowball effect because as our banks talk with us and know what you know what we're what we know about the business, they're going to want to hear. Well, what are the other institutions doing? And AFS has that knowledge because of our extensive client base. What do you see as the biggest challenges to banks in commercial lending over the next few years? I think the challenge is a continuation of applying automation. This this whole digital wave. Right. There are continued pressures on the, the banks and the lending institutions to reduce their costs. And certainly that's through technology, but also to improve the client experience. And we talked about our, our AFS vision platform being truly a real time platform because that is what customers expect. You know, if I was in the room with you, I'd be holding up my cell phone or my mobile device, because I'll say that now everyone expects instant, immediate information right on this device. And that's going to follow through into the the commercial lending space. So creating a better customer experience where a customer is going to get look for a loan and wants to know the status and so forth. Also, the the people at the institution, at the banks who are involved in the process, they need a better experience where they can go and know what the status of any deal is, what the status of any account is. So, so all that continues uh, to build, and you know, it allows us to to stay more in touch with what's happening with the trends in the business and so forth. We even go so far as have you know formal advisory councils where we meet with our with our clients on a regular basis and talk about the trends in the business needs and so forth uh, to, to continue our expansion of our capabilities. And is AFS well prepared for these changes? Well, that's a great question. Um, so what we know is the, the people that are best prepared are the people that are going to be the most successful. And 
We've demonstrated that, I believe, by being in business for 50 years already, by building up uh, the, the number one client base uh, amongst the, the commercial lending space. And so we've continued to look, and part of that is to continue to look ahead, to anticipate. Uh, we're certainly uh, building up with our, with our staff and uh, always focused on training with the programs to bring in additional staff to grow the, the size and scale uh, of our business. And also, again, to very carefully listen to the market and to our customers to hear where, what they are looking for, where they are headed. So they are all things that we do, I think, that helps us position you know, for, for uh, continued success. As we like to say, we've done 50 years, and, and we're looking forward to how we do another 50 years in this business. Certainly staying in touch with the industry associations and so forth, uh, working with firms, even like with FinTech Futures, right? That gives us even better insight to, to the market and allows us to get our messaging out to the market as well. We're here in part three for FinTech Jail, returning again in 2021. We have a truckload of terms tucked away in prison from season one, but what will be joining it? If you don't know the rules, uh, we ask for an industry term, buzzword, or trend that our guest has had enough of, and then debate whether it should be put away for good. Uh, so, Dean, what term do you wish to see the back of? Or have you found a buzzword that's already in the jail you'd like to spring out? <laughs> Well, I, I will admit uh, many of the words um, I think we would agree with that are in jail. But we're going to offer today, uh, and believe it or not, the, the word fintech and and the use of the word fintech as a noun. Right? I, we we believe that referring to fintechs that continued use perpetuates the notion that that banks are in an antagonistic relationship with technology companies. And really, that should not be the case and where we are in 2021, even if it ever was. Uh, most, I think most observers assert that banks and technology companies, especially newer startup firms, so-called fintechs, should be establishing partnerships for mutual benefit instead of, I'll say, fighting over market share and, and customer relationships. Uh, I think, you know, uh, fintech or financial technology, that, that's just where we are in our world. I don't know that a fintech itself needs to differentiate a group. Um, uh, certainly, you know, in our customers, which are mostly banks, uh, they are very focused on technology and technology around their, their financial business. Ooh, okay. Well, we, we had – we. Oh, this is a tough one for us. I mean, it's in our name. Oh, yes, strong. <laughs> Didn't waste any time. <laughs> that not strong. This is the one. You know, this is the one that if we put it in jail, we're gonna have to have a stern conversation with our editor in chief. Yes. Do we put ourselves in jail? I mean, we're questioning this once again. I I feel like everyone's coming for us. <laughs> I'm starting to feel attacked. <laughs> no, it was not intended to be that. And I think it was a little bit of of tongue in cheek. I think, and maybe not do away with the word, but how it is used would be a better better approach, maybe for what we're saying. Hmm. 
I mean, we gave quite a lot of harsh sentences um, last season. I was actually quite shocked <laughs> as to how long some of those were. Yeah. Um, I thought I was more for, you know, restorative justice. And here I was being incredibly punitive. Um, hmm, I guess this for me then could use rehabilitation. You know, that's what I'm going to be for this season. You know, let's try and and stop using it, I guess, as a noun. Um, although that's kind of hard to do. Um, what do you think, Alex? I I think, uh, what do I think? Um, fintech as a term is like, it's, I feel like it's become this sort of, this big blob uh, that covers a thousand different things. Everything's a fintech now. Uh, if you can't, if, you, if you've used like an, an example uh, of, uh, uh, I'm going to do my best Trump impression here in lazy journalism is if someone has used the, na- the company's name for too many times in a sentence, they just say the fintech afterwards as a way to break it up because fintech is just, you can just use it for everything now. Any company, payments, lending, um, core banking, uh, investment, wealth, all of them are fintechs. And although we, you know, it gets split into wealth tech and pay tech and things like that by us, uh, especially, uh, it, it's almost too big to put in jail. It's like, it's too big to jail. Uh, but, no, so, what are we like? Are we like the, you know, SEC post-global financial crisis, too big to jail? Ooh, <laughs> come on, we, we've got to have some sort of justice here. This man does have a point. <laughs> some proper um, soul searching going on here. No, I mean... It really is. <laughs> we are scratching our hands quite a oh, lot for this. Put an ankle tag, tag on it for a yes. house arrest. House arrest is what we're going to say. House arrest for. We're going to Jordan a help it. Put it on house arrest. Well, there we go. New fintech are going into the house arrest <laughs> jail <laughs> for a year and a half with an ankle bracelet. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. Well, that's all we have time for this episode. Thanks to Sharon and Dean for joining me. Uh, Before we sign off, though, just a chance for everyone to uh, plug socials, websites, companies, books, LinkedIn addresses, webinars, all sorts. Uh, Dean, you're up first. I think mostly we're we're plugging um, AFS and AFS Vision as our product. So you can find us uh, at afsvision.com and also on Facebook under uh, Automated Financial Systems and AFS. Excellent. Uh, Sharon, what about you? You can find me at Fintech Kits. That's Fintech, like the way you spell it. And now on house arrest and kit, all one word, K-I-T-S, like football kits. Also, just Google me and find me on LinkedIn, um, where I'll be happy to accept your request, no matter how random. Uh, don't Google me because you won't find me. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at ADHamilton91 and on LinkedIn by searching my name. I think I am on the second page of Google for Alex Hamilton, though. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I'll, I'll, beat, I'll beat the famous US secretary at some point um, and founding father. It's quite hard to beat a founding father, but there you go. As for Fintech Futures, you can find us online at fintechfutures.com, uh, on Twitter at, at fintechfutures, and on LinkedIn just by searching Fintech Futures and looking for our logo. Uh, if you liked this podcast and our other episodes from last season, please subscribe to uh, us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service. And as always, we'd really appreciate it if you could help others find the podcast. 
uh, write a review or recommend us to a friend. Thanks very much for any and all support. Uh, We will see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech. But until then, goodbye.